everyone. I'm John Pataki, and this is Best One Since the Next One, the podcast that dives deeper than the knife. John Wick just plunged into your aorta as a professional courtesy into genre entertainment and the fandom it inspires. This week, we're pulling our booster seats up to the high table and taking a good, hard look into our own tortured souls by discussing John Wick Chapter 2 as we march towards the release of John Wick Chapter 4 later this month. To do that with me, we brought in a man with his own $7 million contract on his head. It's Paul Jaisley, everyone. Thank you for having me back, John. I'm very excited to talk about John Wick 2. Uh, I will not remove this knife from my aorta. Thank you for uh, putting it there. I'll make sure I get to the hospital before they take it out. So It was a gentleman's plunge. <laughs> Perfect. And you're you're as as suave and sophisticated as common, so I'm happy to have you here. <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm talking about that. John Wick Chapter Two. You were saying beforehand that you've got thoughts. I think it's time we get yeah. into them. What's your sure. What's your relationship as a whole to John Wick Two? Like I know we talked a lot about John Wick One last time. Two is a, almost an entirely different animal. So how how what are your feelings on John Wick Two before we watching it again? Sure, uh, it was interesting to go back and revisit it because I don't think I'd seen it i don't think i'd rewatched it um since the first time i saw it and of course i think last time we talked about it like i ended up watching the first genwick after this has already been out so i kind of watched the the first two almost back to back like so they're kind of like of a piece to me like to see how they fit together so it was interesting to go back and rewatch two and to see again i think we talked about briefly uh on the last episode the idea like you can tell like they didn't have a sequel in mind when they made the first one and I think they did a good job of choosing how to make the sequel, John Wick Chapter 2, bigger in a lot of ways. I will say, and we can talk about this more as we go on, but I will say rewatching it, I thought it almost feels like two different movies. The first half of John Wick 2 is not nearly as interesting as the second half. I think once once Lawrence Fishburne shows up, it becomes a much more interesting movie. Hold that thought. We'll get to it for sure. <laughs> okay. John Wick 2 is probably the one I've seen the least, and I'm sure recency bias has a lot to do with it. But right now, I'm like, oh, man, John Wick Chapter 2. Maybe that's the best <laughs> one. Also, uh, you know, my relationship to it was basically just, you know, I had watched it, you know, after I'd paid for the dvd from Redbox for john wick one i uh, <laughs> right. did not learn my lesson and i think i did the same thing with john wick two so i just <laughs> sure. own both of the dvds in like the little uh stupid old Redbox plastic sleeves i don't even have like yeah. the dvd cases for them i watched this on peacock unfortunately with ads and it was very oh, funny no. to me because it was like yeah something very serious and dramatic would happen and then it would cut to like a saint jude's children's hospital commercial <laughs> and i was like mm, this is real tonal whiplash here but i digress uh I, I think before we go any further it's time to choose which gun pairs best with dessert get our suits fitted with some bulletproof lining and check into the continental as we dive deeper into the world of john wick how good to see you again so soon mr week i need you to do this task i'm not that guy anymore you're always that guy john i can't help you you know the rules. If you don't do this, you know the consequences. Accounts payable. How may I help you? I'd like to open an account. Name on the account? John Wick. The contract has gone international. You have no idea what's coming. Somebody, please get this man a gun. You stabbed the devil in the back. To him, this isn't vengeance. This is justice. You working? Afraid so. Whoever comes, I'll kill them. Kill them all. 
course you will. I'll try and do the same. As you were saying, Paul, there was never actually supposed to be a sequel to John Wick. It was conceived as a standalone film. So when it itself was greenlit, you know, director Chad Stahelski and Keanu Reeves, who has a big part in developing the movies, the trilogy of John Wick films up to this <laughs> point, they only asked they had enough time to make it, quote, not suck, unquote. So <laughs> thoughts on John Wick 2. Did they succeed in making it not suck? It, it does not suck. And uh, the, the criticisms I have of the movie are, um, again, as I, said, as I said earlier, we can unpack them a little bit more, but I think mm. it's um, it it kind of takes a while to find what makes John Wick interesting. Like mm-hmm. the first half, I think, doesn't quite click for me. But again, once you get to the second half, it becomes a much more personal story about him, you know, and the, the bounty on his head. That's the stuff that works. And like the second half of the movie is just is awesome. No, no notes for the second half of chapter two. I understand that. I just think that I disagree. Yeah. I think that like <laughs> right right from the moment that John Wick's home gets firebombed, basically, like uh, I think from that moment on, it just becomes so personal to him that the whole movie is just like the full promise of John Wick. And we'll get into more okay. of that later on as well. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's definitely way more operatic than the first. It's pretty on the nose with how operatic it gets. It takes place in mm-hmm. Rome. It's way more religious themed than the first one. Um, yeah. This is a movie about John Wick atoning for sins and jumping back into a lifestyle of sin. Santino, the main villain's name, translates to Little Saint. They talk about a descent into hell. They talk about stabbing the devil in the back. Uh, excommunicado, obviously a reference to like being excommunicated from the church, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, but it's just way bigger in scope in terms of you know how you build a sequel is taking the world and just blowing the doors off of it and making it that much bigger. I think it really succeeds in that. And whereas the pacing might feel off because of that, how it's treated in the first half of it, I really think that the world building steps in and makes yes. makes up for that. Whereas John Wick 1 was like proof of concept. This is like, yeah. okay, we're actually going to make John Wick now. Well, yeah. And and I, I want to say, like, again, like my criticisms are very minor. Like I still like the first half of the oh, movie. Yeah. I just, that feels very different to me that it feels like two parts that don't quite maybe click together. But like you said, the operatic, themes of it i mean i'm someone that was raised catholic and there is something very like comforting about the sort of like ritual and like uh pageantry of all that when he goes to rome and it's just like it does feel like almost like a religion like a, the way that they establish that world it's just the the glamorous clothes the 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 settings of it there is something almost very catholic and like ritualistic about all of it that is very very visually appealing and i think kind of speaks to the larger themes like you were saying I completely agree with that. That's something like as a recovering Catholic myself, that's something that I always <laughs> found like really interesting about mass and things like that, where all the little yeah. trinkets and the little ornate yes. pageantry behind it. And that's, it's really just basically pasted over the top of this movie. So plus the idea of someone that is completely absorbed by his guilt that creates the fire inside of him to push himself forward. That's a very Catholic yeah. thing as well. <laughs> so for sure, for sure. Yeah. John Wick chapter two released February 10th, 2017. Directed this time, believe only by Chad Stahelski. Written once again by Derek Kolstad. Budget on this one was $40 million with a box office return of $170 million. Starring, obviously, Keanu Reeves back as John Wick. Keanu Reeves performed about 95% of the film's stunts himself. Yeah. The only stunts that he didn't do are the ones in which John Wick gets hit by a car. And he gets he gets hit by a car like 40 times in this movie. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then him falling down the stairs with Cassian and that crazy 
uh, yeah. back alley fight okay. with Common. Understandable that those are the ones that he did not do as those are probably the For most sure. dangerous ones. I wonder if he did. He does roll down the stairs later in the movie on his own. I wonder if he did that one himself. Common, as we just mentioned, is in this film mm-hmm. as Cassian, the bodyguard of uh, one of the other characters. Common lobbied super hard for this role. Loved the first film and wanted to be in the second one so much that he flew himself to L.A. for fight training just to be a part of the movie. Wow. Then we get into the man himself, Larry Fishburne, <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne as the Bowery King. This is the first time that Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves worked together since the Matrix Re- Revolutions in 2003. Mm-hmm. Keanu and obviously Lawrence Fishburne are great friends. They meet up a few times every year. In one of those meetings, the two of them were talking and Lawrence Fishburne declared his love for the first John Wick. And so they got him a script right away. And he replied in, in writing and said, I'm in fish. So that's how he <laughs> perfect. He was he was down. <laughs> Ricardo Scamarcio as Santino D'Antonio. I'm glad they got the most Italian name person ever to play <laughs> Santino. Um, Ruby Rose as Aries, who's actually never called Aries in the film, but you know that's no. her name from the, the credits themselves. Lance Reddick back as Sharon. Peter Stormare as Abraham Terazov. Franco Nero as Julius, the manager of the Roman chapter of the continental john leguizamo pops in as aurelio ian mcshane back as winston and then bridget moynihan getting that john wick money for showing up in pictures and About super eight minute, footage yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, as john wick's <laughs> dead wife helen wick so the gang's all back together with some new characters as most sequels do this film actually takes place the day after the first film or at least within the the week of the first film picks up within that first week we open Mid-car chase as John Wick chases down an, an anonymous motorcyclist through the neon-soaked streets of New York City. John cuts off the motorcyclist and he slams into the muscle car, knocking him to the ground. John removes an ornate card from his pocket that has like the chip function and like tap function on it. If you look closely, it's like a the chip, so don't swipe it, John. You gotta tap it on the thing. <laughs> it's a key card to Abram Tarzoff's lair. John infiltrates it with ease to steal his car back. Another car chase takes place immediately after that. <laughs> And John takes out a pursuant motorcyclist with his car door, taking the door off and kills another stray hitman by sideswiping him with the car, which is really awesome to watch. <laughs> then jumps out of the car and dispatches a few more cronies in hand-to-hand combat. John finds his way to Abram's office and pours a drink for each of them, calling for peace, to which Abram replies, can a man like you ever really know peace? Which is the thesis statement for John Wick Chapter 2. John peels out in his completely obliterated car, which I think is like, it's so funny that he just like starts it up and and rolls off. But I really love this this movie picks up so quickly after the first film because it really adds to the character of John Wick. It really makes that like forward momentum, builds him as this unstoppable killing machine. And even more so, we'll talk about this probably way more so in John Wick 3 because that's kind of the point of that film, the exhaustion of being pursued that as that begins to set in. Um, yeah, and it, it's interesting too because, like, in the first movie, and even they've even repeated in this one this idea of John Will just John Wick being someone who's just driven by pure will, like he can just do anything he puts his mind to, and like that that first opening fight scene with they're fighting with their cars, like in that car chase, is so much a point of that. Where it's like it's not even about the car itself; it's the idea that someone brought him back into this life that he left behind. So, I mean, this car is obliterated, so it's not really about keeping the car itself or that it was stolen from him. It's the, more of the idea that he was out and somehow he gets dragged back into it. I really like the yeah. idea. And it, it reminded me of something that I don't think we mentioned last time when we talked about the first movie is that there's that scene in John Wick where uh, before he runs into the, the Yosef at the gas station, like he goes to like this, it's like an airport kind of, like oh, a yeah, private yeah. airport. 
and he does like the the stunt driving and all that stuff. Like, and I was thinking about that scene watching this car chase in this one. I'm like, is this was that an idea of him? Was that cathartic for him? Like him getting out all this energy and frustration from what he had went through with his wife passing, or is that him needing the adrenaline rush of his past life? Is he a thrill junkie or is he just trying to expend that energy so he doesn't feel it anymore? It's like, I think you can read it both ways. Either way, it establishes him as an amazing driver, which we get to see Definitely. right here in this movie in that first first scene. It's seemingly, it feels like a throwaway scene a little bit in the first film, but then as the trilogy goes on, it kind of informs that scene even more that like he's out, but he's never really out mentally. I just have to point out that in real life, when, when he drives the car and kind of jump drifts it like he jumps yeah. it out of like a, a gate and it's kind of sideways and hits the ground drifting uh it <laughs> yes. it, it destroyed that it destroyed the car in one take when they did that i just think, <laughs> think that's so funny that they're like Amazing. yeah we'll drift it and then just shreds the car <laughs> instantly arriving at home in broad daylight once again without clearly any traffic stops because there's only one cop in this whole world i get a, a ticket just for driving home with like a blinker out but john wick drives right. his car his yeah. car like completely smashed up home um <laughs> He pulls a card from his dashboard, a uh, birthday card or something from his deceased wife, just to clue the audience in that this all started from his wife passing away with the killing of his dog. He still thinks about yeah. Helen every day. Aurelio shows up, played by John Leguizamo, to check on the condition of John's car, saying he can probably <laughs> fix it by the summer of 2030. In the meantime, John whips up a fresh batch of, batch of concrete to seal his guns away once more. He just dug them up earlier that week, and now yeah. it's time to get back out of that life once again and seal them up with some more concrete, but not for long, John. It doesn't stay buried <laughs> for long, buddy. Later that night, Santino D'Antonio, an old colleague and the man that made it possible for him to complete his impossible task that let him retire in the first film, he shows up to deliver a marker, which is sort of like a blood oath, a physical form of a blood oath that a hitman can show up and collect on at any moment. It's like, I saved your life. Yeah. Now you owe me a favor. Here's this marker. And we'll learn the rules of that marker later on, but they're do this over espresso in John's backyard. John declines, saying he's not about that life anymore. Santino leaves, saying, hey, you've got a really nice house, buddy. It'd be a shame if anything, anything happened to it. And then <laughs> two minutes later, returns yeah. with a grenade launcher and just blows up John's house. And with it, all of the pictures and memories of his wife. Seemingly at that point forward, this film is kind of him branching away from that. And it becomes about so much more than just the dog killed in front of him. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of about this, his his mission to tear down the establishment from the inside. And this is like the, the roots of that because all of his belongings and photographs of his past life are, are now destroyed and he no, no longer has a base of operations. He's, yeah. he's a ship without a country. Some of the ideas, we were talking about the marker a little bit. Some of the ideas that yeah they tossed out for John Wick 2 were like maybe he had a daughter that he was trying to protect or maybe this time it was mm -hmm. a cat not a dog that uh, <laughs> incited his his revenge streak but yeah. um, instead they decided on the marker as a way to like kind of blow open the mythology of John Wick I'm glad they went this way and made it more ceremonial like we were talking about because we were saying this film is so largely about repentance and like karma and what goes around coming back around and the, the markers are like a perfect symbol for that so the idea of the marker is really interesting because again it kind of symbolizes the idea like he can never really go away from get away from this life he can't refuse it you know what i mean once you're in you're in and like on the other hand it just means that like again for like the first part of half first half of this film he's given a task that he really has no emotional investment in it's like like he's basically doing a favor for someone else versus the first film when a very personal mission that he was on so I think those two ideas kind of lend themselves together. The idea is like one is like he begrudgingly has to do this thing that he has no desire to. And then later on in the movie, he gets a more personal reason, you know, to kind of continue on. 
Yeah. It's weird. I, I go back and forth on that because it's like here is like so much of the film is leading up to him uh, assassinating uh, Gianna um, D'Antonio. Mm-hmm. It's like, but I don't really care about that. You know what I mean? Because I don't think he does either. So like that's it feels less personal in that way. But we know it's going to lead to something bigger. Again, it's interesting to watch these movies knowing what's coming. Like it's hard for right, me to be sure. too critical because I know like three takes the ideas even bigger and, and better in a lot of ways. So I think that in terms of the marker itself, I think that's meant to have no personal stakes. And that's mm-hmm. that's it kind of makes John Wick seem like a helpless character in that moment. We'll, we'll get to it in a minute with with Gianna. But some of the choices that she makes kind of propel him down a different path. I see what you're saying, but I do think the helplessness of the marker is something that pushes John forward and, and that becomes a personal stake. I mean, but so again, yeah, he's kind of like, he ends up getting forced to do it because literally he has nothing to live for anymore. His house is gone. Right. His wife's gone. It's like, what does he have? It's almost like a desperation that he has to do this. And then he very quickly decides to break from it right later on in the film. Uh, Santino says like, if you didn't come out of retirement, I would have left this alone, but you, you dropped back in that pool. So it's fair game. But I, I know exactly what you're saying. We're just kind of, it kind of makes him a secondary character in his own movie uh, sure. by doing yeah. that. But I, I do think that that's intentional. John and his unnamed pup get their 10,000 steps in for the day. And they walk, <laughs> they walk from the house like to the Continental in downtown Brooklyn yeah. or whatever. Like <laughs> He clearly lives in like upstate New York or something. It's, it seems like a really far walk. Um, well, yeah, but, doesn't I mean, isn't the first one? Doesn't we see his license plate is a New Jersey license plate? Yeah, so he has to walk across the Jersey yeah. River <laughs> yeah. somehow. You, do you get the sense that his dog's not named intentionally? Like if you if you like name the pig or like the chicken that you're raising, then you'll create an attachment to it. Then you can't eat it at that point. Not that he's going to eat his dog, but like <laughs> you think you think you do you think he didn't name the dog, so he's not too attached to it. So if it, anything happens to it, he's not going to feel that loss again. I that that makes sense. Again, like the the previous dog was named Daisy and that was named by his wife. Like he did not right. name that dog. So it's like, yeah, maybe the idea of like either he's waiting to give it a name because he had just gotten it like the day before. Mm-hmm. Like maybe he's right. maybe he was still thinking about it. But yeah, I do like the idea of like he doesn't maybe feel comfortable giving it that, you know, personality yet. He knows how like uh transient so much of his life can be. You know, he can get ripped away from it at any moment. They pay Winston a visit on the rooftop of the Continental, <laughs> who tells them that there are two solemn rules that can never be broken. No bloodshed on Continental grounds, and you can never refuse a marker. These are like Chekhov's rules. They will <laughs> definitely come back later on. <laughs> never do these two things ever. You've already done one of them, so you need to go back over there and accept it now. Yeah. Otherwise, you're in violation. John Wick boards his dog with Sharon. Uh, and <laughs> heads to the museum where he gets aggressively felt up and searched before he goes to meet with <laughs> Santino to not so politely accept the marker after all. Santino charges Wick with killing his sister, Gianna D'Antonio, for her spot at the high table. The high table being a collection of the top 12 highest ranking, most powerful hitmen, crime lords in the world. It might have been mentioned in the first one, but it's like really introduced big time in this film. John is dubious, but silently accepts and heads on his way to Rome. Um, checking in at the Roman branch in the Continental, he meets up with the manager, Julius. After he asks if he's, if he's there to assassinate the Pope, and John looks like, not here to kill the Pope, sorry. <laughs> uh, John begins his mission, visits a tailor for a couple new suits, mm-hmm. including one, one with bulletproof lining, which is yeah. very important later in the film. Uh, mm-hmm. He meets with an insider who gives him the lay of the land at Gianna's coronation, and he goes to a weapons dealer called the Sommelier <laughs> to ask for to ask for weapons and not so yeah. veiled 
wine analogies. So yeah, I love all this stuff. Again, as I said earlier, the sort of the pageantry and the the ornate sort of symbolism, all of this stuff, it's it, it's very engaging. I've never liked James Bond films, but this is sure. everything I like. People like I think people like about James Bond in a way that I appreciate. I mean, it just felt like that seemed them the suit, the world travelogue kind of sense, all the scenes of him like going to to Rome. It's all beautifully shot, you know, and then like you know, all the guns and all the sort of like tongue in cheek references to wine and like all mm-hmm. that stuff. Like that is the kind of stuff that I think people like about James Bond. And here it is in a way that I really attach to. I think it's so well done. Could you recommend anything for the end of the night? Something big, bold. May I suggest the Benelli M4? Custom bolt carrier release and charging handle. Textured grips, should your hands get wet. An Italian classic. Dessert. Dessert. The finest cutlery, all freshly stoned. This is the moment where the doors get blown off and the full promise of the John Wick franchise comes into play because we find out that there's not just the Continental, there's Continentals throughout the world. There's the Roman branches of them. Everyone has a manager. The rules remain the same. You can't conduct business on the grounds of the Continental. Um, Mm -hmm. We learn new rules. We come to understand how far flung everything actually is. And I love a a gear up scene in any movie so much. They completely nailed them in these movies. So. It, it's it's so well done and like um jumping back briefly you know you mentioned the idea that they sort of like are making up these rules or introducing these rules as they go along and i kind of really like the way the these films handle that there is a sort of like stream of consciousness like a kid making up a story like well this needs to happen and this happens like and it's never like overwhelming or feels like half-assed but it just like you're so caught up in it that you don't really stop to question it until we're talking about it now. I'm like, yeah, that is weird that they just kind of all of a sudden mention all the stuff that's vitally important to this organization, like the high mm-hmm. table and the the markers, all the stuff. But it, it doesn't bother me because there's such a, a forward momentum to the film that it doesn't really you don't ever like stop to question it. You know, absolutely. And in, in the first movie, it's kind of like salt and pepper on top. But this one, yeah. it's like it's like a sauce that it's cooked in. It's like it's a, it's a major <laughs> it's a major component of it is creating this mm-hmm. world and the childlike stream of consciousness aspect of it is because that concept that they were like we don't really have a sequel idea we just got to think yeah. of ideas uh it's it was literally just chad stahelski and keanu reeves like what if we did this what if we're like hit woman that spoke in asl yeah. and john wick also yeah. speaks italian in asl what if <laughs> you know what if this happened what if he gets suits made like it was literally just mm-hmm. them like wouldn't it be cool if wouldn't it be cool if, if we did all this yeah. so and it's like this idea that like you finally get to see like how good John Wick was after the first movie. Everyone's talking about his reputation. Here he is in Rome, and you kind of get the sense like not only was he a great hitman, like he kind of enjoyed it. There's a sense of like he kind of is kind of like back in his groove, right? Oh yeah. It's like he's even though he's begrudgingly taking this task, like him talking to the arms dealer and him giving the suit made. It is like him, like all right, this is. I'm comfortable here. I know this, even though I don't like being back here, this is what I know, you know? And it's like later on, obviously I think he changes his mind about all that, but it's kind of interesting to see on screen, the John wick that's like talked about in the first one. Because Oh yeah. Absolutely. He was like an international jet setting assassin. That is like the best there is at what he does and what he does. Isn't very nice, you know, to quote another franchise. <laughs> yeah. He's literally getting suits tailored to fit him to be more comfortable in this life. 
Yeah. So John, with the help of the blueprints and things like that from the previous scenes, John infiltrates Gianna's coronation via the catacombs beneath and gets the drop on her in her dressing room where she opts to slit her wrists in the face of certain death. Um, (laughs) This is kind of what I was talking about before, that the, the mission to go kill Gianna not being of his own free will, it's something he has to do is kind of met head on by Gianna in this moment. Who's like, you're not going to kill me. If, if you're here to kill me, I'm going to take my own life first because I live on my own terms. And I think that plant, that plants an idea in John's head, whether it's, uh, whether it's outright or not that, okay, this is actually my game and I'm going to take this over from here on. So I think it is passive. It is a passive mission, but to me, it really sets him off on this, like burn it all down course. Yeah, so to honor the ending of the marker here, John shoots her in the head to close the deal uh, before <laughs> being spotted by Gianna's bodyguard, Cassian, on the way out, um, which is also something I think really is really funny in this movie. There's a lot of John Wick just like walking into a place. There's no like, there's some <laughs> sneaking around, but he's just kind of like, yeah. I'm so good that I'm just going to arrive and just walk past people and it, yeah. they're just going yeah. to just gonna have to deal with it. So yeah, Cassian, <laughs> played by Common, gives chase with his henchmen into the catacombs. Uh, while down there, John's taking everybody out left and right. He's double-crossed by Santino and his henchmen. The deaf assassin Ares attacks. Luckily, before all this happened, John set up the catacombs Home Alone style uh, before <laughs> entering and makes just short work <laughs> of everybody. Do you think that he understood that there's a double-cross imminent or do you think he was just being a badass and just be like having a contingency plan? Yeah, I I, I got the sense that that's just how he operated. Like he, <laughs> you know, having why would he go get the blueprints if he didn't have a plan of like setting something up? Like he True. knew where to store the guns. Like it's all like it's uh, all the preparation. There's there's like one scene where um, you see Gianna and her bodyguards like walking through this like courtyard, and like it pans up, you see like John Wick like standing like kind of like in the shadows like watching it all play out so he's like observing everything so i think mm-hmm. it's all kind of a grand scheme he has put together which um yeah it feels very like very batman victories in the preparation and that's kind of why john wick is so good because he can does all the the you know the legwork before the actual mission in a way the only reason i thought that maybe he he sensed the double cross coming is because his conversation with aries he's like loose ends and she's like one and gives the middle finger and he's like Sure. So, you know, it, it could very much be just an improv thing of like, oh, of course this was going to happen. Yeah. So and this also is like the start of one of my favorite things that happens throughout John Wick. Chapter two is John Wick just th- like throwing guns at people's faces. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. yeah. I, I love it so much where he's just like, fuck it. And just throw like <laughs> cracks people's head in with a gun before he shoots them. Uh, it's just yeah. it's such a funny, <laughs> a big part of the um, the guidance for the action scenes in this film. Chad Stahelski says that they were they wanted it to start with something funny and end with something funny and fill the middle in with like brutality. And I think yeah. that really shines through because the action set pieces in this are like so next level. After John takes out everybody in the catacombs, Cassian rams John with his car uh, and then they <laughs> duke it out for I think like 45 minutes in the streets and it's alleyways great. of Rome. Yeah. You know, they're falling down stairwells. They're trying to. You know, stab each other with knives or shoot each other, but mm-hmm. they can't get get the angle because the other one's just so evenly matched with with each yeah. other that they're they're basically like one to one with their fighting skills, and uh, it's a draw because at the end of it, uh, both of them go crashing through the window of the Continental, uh, effectively mm-hmm. ending their brawl on a technicality. And they get up and they go to snag a drink. Cassian drinks gin, of course. John Wick drinks bourbon because he's real basic. <laughs> 
they talk shop about Gianna's death and the marker itself. Cassian swears vengeance on John for killing his ward. Um, mm-hmm. Pays for the round and says, consider it a professional courtesy, which is also very important because it definitely comes yeah. back around on him later. Um, yeah. Aries is also just chilling in the background on the couch and she's like, I'm also going to kill you, so watch out for me as well. <laughs> like I was saying, the official body count of this movie is 116 people. And yeah, I think wow. they really, they really, as brutal as the first one was, they really upped the ante in this one. So much more, pun- like that's just so much more punishing and over the top and choreographed yeah. even on even in little moments but it seems like you you didn't love the catacomb stuff as much <laughs> that's one thing i did notice when i was watching it again like all the the, the shootout in the catacombs just i mean it's still good there are moments in it that i really like because there's you get little like it's a big set piece but there are little like moments like i think is that where the scene where at one point he's like he's got like a a rifle and he's like pinning a dude to the floor with the the muzzle while he reloads it like that little stuff like that i really like but the staging of it i thought was very strange it it's one of the few times in this franchise where it does feel video gamey to me and i'm not like a video game person but like it does have that first like you're watching someone play a first person shooter i think it has more to do with like the way it's so like shadowy and darkly lit in the catacombs obviously because they're catacombs but it feels uh sort of generic in a way Whereas I felt the first movie and later on in this movie, the action scenes have much better like a uh, way of establishing a sense of place. You know what I mean? Compare like the catacombs shootout, the way that looks versus him taking out all the guys at his house in the first one. Like you get a very clear yeah. sense of where they are in the house throughout that in the catacombs. It's very confusing where exactly it's all taking place to me. This is meant to show, like you were saying him thinking out everything from start to finish beforehand, yeah. but also like how, He's good in any environment, whether it's mm-hmm. well lit, darkly lit, like he's just unstoppable sure. in any kind of situation. But I do tend to agree with you because it's fun to watch. But like we said in the first movie, the the best part about the John Wick action style is how legible it is. Yes. And in order for it to be understood as something that's really amazing and effective on screen, you have to be able to see it. I enjoy it. I think it's a good scene, but there's definitely stuff that comes later on where you're like, okay, this is the real deal. I mean, it's a pretty, again, it's a pretty minor qualm because I, you know, it's, it's still rewatching it. It kind of, st- 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 again, I still think it's great I, I, overall, but yeah, there's certain moments in the hallway in the catacombs. I'm just like, all right, this kind of just feels like I'm watching someone play a video game. It doesn't have the same, the same sort of close up closeness that, that you see later on, like that fight scene with Cassian and him falling down the stairs and all that shit. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, I love all of that. The sort of like, mm-hmm. you see the mechanics of their grappling. It's much more clear what's actually going on versus just like a bunch of like gunfire. <laughs> so sure. it's much sure. more appealing to me. Yeah. I actually prefer the the beginning half of that set piece where they're at the rave. Like, yes. what's a job? Yes. What's a job movie without a, a, a rave shootout? <laughs> but like this, that one felt right. it's that one feel has that like operatic pageantry to it as well, because it's within the yes. confines of this like castle in a courtyard with like neon lights and you know yeah. shooting people not in broad daylight but shooting people in the public and everyone's like scattering um mm-hmm. and it's like the pre- the precision of john wick comes back in john receives a phone call from santino but hangs up on him immediately so in turn santino makes another call uh this time to make a bounty on john to the operators uh who are first introduced in this film there's like a whole aspect of the hitman organization that you know it's like these operators that patch in bounties to all the the bounty hunters and hitmen throughout the world. He puts a bounty on his head of $7 million and it's transmitted to seemingly every active hitman in the area as John checks out of the Continental and heads back to New York City. 
Winston shows up and forces Santino to make the marker complete and warns him that he just stabbed the devil in the back and now the devil is coming for him. In the, in this time, as Winston is talking about John Wick being the devil, the bounty hits various hitmen's cell phones and John Wick runs a gauntlet of activated hitmen and women. And we finally get to see him kill a couple guys with a pencil. Yes, um, of course. But this part rules. I love the sumo guy because he takes like four, <laughs> 40 shots to take down. That part is super yeah. video gamey, but he's like, that guy, he just, will, he just will not drop. Again, I love him putting the pencil up against the wall and slamming the guy's head against um, it. But yes, rules. I, I mean, that's so perfect because I remember like, it is it is the meme of Leonardo DiCaprio watching himself in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because yeah. like when he pulls the pencil, I was like, oh, so he did it. He killed the dude he with the pencil it. just like he wanted. Um, but yeah, I love the idea that it's. I mean, it's cartoonish. The idea that basically everyone in New York is a secretly an assassin that gets this mm. like text message that there's like an open bounty. But like at at that point, like I think that they have given this is where the movie really kind of works for me where just like okay what's mm-hmm. let's make this over the top and let's make this super fun and they that's what they do it's the idea that there's a whole secret network once you see the like the the operators and like oh there is a whole secret network at operation here and like you've they've hinted at it before with like the few brief moments where uh keanu is talking to the police officer jimmy you get sense mm-hmm. like okay like there's a secret world that the police are are just ignoring or they know about and like it's operating underneath our world here. It's right there. And again, I think we talked about this in the last episode, this idea that that world kind of exists, you know, parallel to our own. Like it goes right. by unseen and we get more of that with the Lawrence Fishburne characters idea that there's an unseen world that we just walk by and don't even notice, but it's very active, you know, uh, under the surface there. It's cartoonish, but you get the idea yeah. of how, how deep this thing actually runs. But there's a, you know, there's a, a part in here as well where the lady in the tunnel with the uh the violin that pulls the silenced pistol mm-hmm. out of her violin and fights him yep. is chad stahelski's wife who is also a stunt woman mm-hmm. in her own right mm-hmm. so she gets a little action set piece in there but i just love anytime where john throws a gun at somebody but also anytime where <laughs> where john wick like makes eye contact with someone and is like oh shit and just bum rushes them yeah. and just uh, it's it's magic it's so great this is the part that i always remember from this movie is he runs into Cassian and the two of them, yeah. this is, again, I do agree with you. I think this is where the movie really takes off because yeah. it starts to get really flashy and stylized. And mm-hmm. he runs into Cassian and the two of them are going through this brightly lit, bright white train station. It goes back to that secret underworld moment that we're talking about. There's millions of people walking by unsuspecting as two hitmen are walking on the hallway, like arms crossed, just firing little silent shots at each other, taking little <laughs> yeah. pot shots as they're walking. I love it. I love it so much. It's so good. Eventually, you know, Cassian and John both board a subway car and the tension mounts as more and more civilians get off the car and they get closer and closer together. And as the train thins out, a knife fight breaks out between Cassian and John. Uh, John eventually emerging victorious after granting Cassian the return professional courtesy of embedding a knife into his aorta <laughs> so he doesn't bleed out. Such a fucking cool moment. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You can never beat when someone throws something back in their face. It's just such a great feeling. John makes his way at this point to the underground to meet up and enlist the help of his old buddy slash nemesis, the Bowery King, after giving a gold coin to uh, a homeless person in the subway that grants him a little reprieve under a blanket and so he can just blend in <laughs> and like rest under a mound of trash, basically. He meets, he goes and meets the Bowery King, the leader of a band of street urchins who communicates via pigeon. So let's do it, Paul. Let's talk about him. Larry Fishburne, <laughs> Larry Fishburne just having the fucking time of his life as the Bowery King. 
you love to see it. You love to see it. I mean, as soon as it's just like, obviously, you know, there's a connection there with uh, the two of them being in the Matrix. But I feel like at this point, watching Lawrence Fishburne, like just having a blast on screen. I mean, every line of dialogue he delivers with such like panache. It's like everything he's just savoring every syllable. And make, it's like him and Ian McShane, it's like who's having more fun delivering these lines? And they're like, you watch them like deliver these 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 dialogue and it's like they're savoring every syllable as a tasty little amuse bouche as they're delivering their lines. Like it's it's wonderful. Absolutely. It's also great just to have that compare and contrast of Lawrence Fishburne and um, Keanu Reeves. Like Larry Fishburne as as Morpheus is very stoic, very yes. These are my yeah. lines. This is what we are talking about now. But in this one, yeah. he's like he's back in like King of New York or something. Just the moment when he's like, "What's the bounty up to? Seven million? Damn! Like he's like we're going to Apple. <laughs> right. We're going to Applebee's after this. It's so great. <laughs> What's the number up to now, Earl? Seven million dollars." Damn! It's Christmas. We're going to Applebee's after this. Well, I, again, and I think this again is where the movie really kind of clicks for me. Like where you get the sort of like them having fun with everything. Like, I mean, I well, they get more into the high table and stuff, but it's so abstract early in the film. Like, oh, I'm going to take my sister's seat at the high table and I'll take control mm-hmm. of New York. And that's so abstract. But these scenes, when it is like, let's just have fun playing in this world that's mm-hmm. much more what i want from these films and like again yeah. Lawrence fishburne embodies that completely because it's like you introduce a whole new idea like someone has basically been able to establish or take some control by using these transient people they're overlooked by society he gives them a purpose whether it's like a you know a valuable or useful purpose like that's up for debate like weaponizing the homeless population but still <laughs> yeah. it's the idea of like Not great <laughs> Right. But he's, you know, giving them shelter and food like, you know, okay, he's doing some sort of outreach. And then like, but at the same time, it is so wonderfully absurd and ludicrous in a way that is very hard to pull off. And I have to say this movie pulls it off so well, like the this sort of tongue in cheekness of all this. It totally balances out with the, the brutality and violence earlier in the film. Like it's I just love the vibe of this whole this whole section here. Yeah, I do think it's really smart to use like kind of a critique on the fact that the unhoused population of New York <laughs> is something that you would just completely turn tune out and avoid and ignore. Yes. But it's really this secret network. At, at this meeting with the Bowery King, John proposes that a storm is coming and that Santino won't stop until he has all of New York City now that he's getting his spot at the high table. And he says, do you want a war or do you want to give me a gun? And Lawrence Fishburne says, "Somebody, please get this man a gun." Uh, and he does. He gives him a gun with seven rounds only in it. One for each million. <laughs> one for each million dollars that's on John Wick's head. And right. John Wick sets off to the museum to confront Santino. Briefly, want to touch on this idea that um, we get a little bit of backstory here with the Bowery King and and uh, mm-hmm. and John Wick. And like again, it's a reference to what we just saw with him and Cassian, where it's like. John Wick, as brutal as he is, has almost like this code of ethics, like two people that he sees as his equal in a way. So it's like casting is sure. not going to like, he's not going to straight up kill him. He gives him an out. And we get the same story here with the Bowery King where Bowery King says like, well, John Wick gave me the option, you know, he didn't mm-hmm. kill me outright. He could have, but he made sure like the idea is like he was right. He was like wounded and either he could like take his hand off the wound and bleed out to shoot John Wick or like live. So it's very similar to those that what he does with Cassian. It's like John Wick is able to uh, 
he's a ruthless killer, but with a heart of gold in a weird way, if that makes any sense at all. Well, it all plays <laughs> into that. That aspect all plays into like the themes of this film, which are yeah. the, the, the choices that we make and how they right. and how they they ripple out and how they condemn us or propel us forward. And I think that the movie is just stocked with these smart character choices like that that are pretty simplistic yeah. on the out, on the outset, but they all add up to a bigger whole. As he goes to confront Santino, John Wick literally just walks right up to Santino in this museum <laughs> And just opens fire on people like he's just like, yeah. it's going down right now. Uh, and this is where it basically becomes one big action set piece towards the end of the film. A um, mm-hmm. couple a couple notable deaths in here. I, I just really love him flinging himself down the stairs and then just like shooting mm-hmm. the guys up at the top of the, at the stairs. Great. There's one part where he pulls a guy down and uses him as a human shield. And then he's like, then he kind of like searches for his head real quick and then shoots him. <laughs> uh, two two more gun throws in this point. Uh, one right. one's just yep. a, one's just a pistol that he chucks at a guy's head, which is hilarious. So many good like wrestling throw kills. Like mm-hmm. there's one specific one in here where he actually I'm going to save it because I I think we'll, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, John. At this point, John enters a glorified selfie warehouse slash hall of mirrors exhibit mm-hmm. that's part of the museum, which I think is really funny because there's this like there's this voiceover that's like search your soul in the hall of mirrors who are you <laughs> right. what have you become it's like super meta like the, t- the <laughs> right. subtext becomes yeah. the text you know he hunts down santino throughout but aries arrives and escorts santino to safety and then decides to take on john wick on her own which is a very bad idea because she gets mm-hmm. stabbed through the heart with her own knife noticeably yeah. he does the same thing that he does to cassian but he pulls the knife out of her i really like this callback too where she signs be seeing you and he's like yeah mm-hmm. sure whatever like it's a yeah. call back to, the, to how, how the first film ends this whole scene is obviously like you were talking about james bond earlier it's a nod to the man with the golden gun but also yes. yeah. more famously the the mirror room fight in uh enter the dragon these films wear their influences on their sleeves and this for is sure. just like like that mirror fight at the end of the end of the dragon but updated for a modern time with like mm-hmm. neon and interactive elements and things like that so Part of it also reminds me. I don't, I doubt you've seen this movie. I don't want to. I don't want to pigeonhole you, <laughs> but there's a moment in um, the first Resident Evil movie, which is not a good movie, where they're okay. in like a hall of mirrors and there's like a laser grid that cuts a guy into like little chunks. Um, <laughs> okay, that's this is clearly not going to happen in this movie because it's an <laughs> no. art exhibit, but it was reminiscent of that. So gotcha, Santino. There's also a lot of glass that breaks in John Wick, especially when we get to three. Yes. But oh, for this sure. is the chapter two is the beginning of just like the John Wick drinking game of drink whenever glass breaks because it's <laughs> ab- completely absurd. So yeah, Santino seeks out Winston at the Continental after he's, he's escaped the museum. He wants John Wick's membership of the organization revoked. Winston says that's he hasn't done anything wrong. I can't mm-hmm. do that with good conscience. So John arrives to seek audience with Santino. It's notable that his finger's already on the trigger, like the decision has been yep. made. So Winston warns John to walk away as the two of them meet over Santino eating dinner, talking about duck fat. John just pops Santino right there on the continental grounds, which we know is Mm -hmm. a big no-no. So now he's broken the two biggest rules possible, um, even though he went back on the one and and redeemed himself. He's he's gone and broken the biggest rule of all. John grabs his dog. Sharon arrives to escort them to a final meeting with Winston, where he informs John that the high table has doubled the contract on him to $14 million, that the whole contract has now gone international, that he's excommunicado and can no longer use the Continental Services, and that his life is forfeit. Winston, (laughs) being his 
you know, his best buddy in the world buys John a one hour head start. And mm-hmm. John at that moment says that Tell them all. Whoever comes, whoever it is, I'll kill them. I'll kill them all. Winston calls in the contract and the entire world is notified of the price on John's head as he and his dog <laughs> run off into the sunset yep. of New York City. Uh, very cool ending. Great. Uh, great. Again, great. it just it just blows the doors off everything. It's just like it's such a huge cliffhanger way to end the film because they've established this larger world. It's like we've only just seen the, the, ice, the tip of the iceberg at this point. You know, as big right. as this movie is in scope, like they established it's even bigger than you can imagine and like great way to end it with all the new rules and the, and the new elements of the lore being introduced we know from the first movie that the worst thing you can possibly do is kill somebody on continental grounds and he <laughs> he willingly does it in front of the manager which is just like it's like again it's about so much more than the killing of his dog at this point he won't yeah. stop until he sees the whole thing burn to the ground it's great it's great i mean it's a callback to him you know in the, in the first film when he finally gets a chance to to take out the guy who killed his dog there's no hesitation. It's like, this is what I'm, what I'm going to do. There's not some like long rooted speech. He doesn't tease it out. He just shoots the guy. And same thing happens here to the continental, to the, the dining room. It's like, I know what I'm going to do. No one's going to talk me out of it and just direct into the point. In the previous episode, we talked about the comparison I saw between John Wick and Snake Plissken. And I think that's even more obvious here by the end of this film where it's like, what makes Snake Plissken so great at the end of Escape from New York is that he had been tasked with saving the world but Snake Plissken doesn't think the world is worth saving. And it's like the world has been so fucked up that the only way to save it is to let it burn and start from scratch. And it kind of what you see in John Wick. It's, it, I mean, it's different stakes here, but John Definitely. Wick is basically saying like this world, this high table, this establishment is nothing. It's like I had a taste of what real life is like. I had happiness. I had a wife and that was all taken from me. I'm going to make sure this world just burns. Like I said, burn it down. And so there's no hesitation about that. And it's just like, I like, right. I think that comparison, which I you know, hinted at the last episode is much more clear by the end of this film. The world within the world is not worth saving to him. That's right. It's such a cool movie. And I really, I really do love <laughs> the fact that it just, it, it, it does make the first film kind of feel like a beta test, even though I love John Wick one so much. Absolutely. It just, it yeah. definitely is like, okay, now we're really doing it. What would you rate John Wick chapter two out of oh. 10 gold coins? You know, it's it's funny. As a, when I was watching it, I was like, "All right, this isn't like clicking for me as much as I remember it." But then, like I said, as soon as Lawrence Fishburne shows up, you get to the second half mm-hmm. of the film. There's so much uh, uh, forward momentum, and it gets to a level of sort of like absurdity that I really enjoy without going completely off the rails. Like I'm gonna go nine. That's nine gold coins for me. I love it. I'm gonna go nine gold yeah. coins as well because it's it's Perfect. really just like I said, it's the it's the promise fulfilled of what John Wick could be. Like we said, 116 people die in this movie. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what was your favorite death? What was your favorite kill? <laughs> I think I have to go with the him killing the two dudes with the pencil. I think so. You get yeah. a two for one there, and there's two people that he kills. But it's um again, it's it functions both as a callback to the first film when they mention that he killed three guys with a pencil. You can only imagine how that would work. Here they show it, and it's so much more brutal than you imagine. Like it's just like I like that they just don't hesitate to just show him like jabbing his pencil into the back of a dude's skull into totally. a guy's ear. It's just. It is unflinching in a way that kind of reminds you. It's like, yeah, John Wick is the best there is at this. And again, what he does is not nice. And you kind of get to see it. And it just reminds you of like, with all the gunplay that happens early in the film, it's like hand to hand, he's the most lethal person you can imagine. And I I just really like that idea. 
those are my favorite parts of John Wick in this film are the hand to hand things. Like it's just For so sure. fun to watch him in the, in those ways. But it's also like they didn't really have to put all the brain matter on the pencil. But I'm glad, <laughs> I'm so glad they did because it's like just so right. absurd. I think my favorite kill in the whole in the whole movie is during that like last rampage through, through the museum. He ends mm-hmm. up in this tiny hallway with two guys like kind of tangled up with him. The one in the middle goes down as the other one goes up. And then he shoots yeah. that guy in the head, and then that that causes the other guy to pop up, and then he shoots him in the head. It's like yeah, I don't know, yeah. just just that like th- that is like the very Batman element of John Wick, where he can like he's like three steps ahead of people, so he can like kind of make how someone's body's going to react to him killing them, knock another person out <laughs> of hiding or like out of their like defensive position. The choreography in that moment is just so fun to watch. This is like kind of sociopathic behavior for me, but I really love when he shoots someone in the knee or the foot to get them to come out of a hiding spot and then, yeah. and then takes them out. It's like, that's like his go-to move besides just running and tackling somebody. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, I guess, yeah, that's John Wick chapter two. Man, it's there's a lot going on on it, but it's still pretty straightforward and it's two hours, but it still feels like about an hour and 40 minutes. It flies. Paul, I'm so excited to talk about John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. I cannot wait. (laughs) Yes, I trust me. I've got a lot of thoughts on that one. I will save them for the next episode. But man, that one. Yeah, Yeah, I just cannot wait. It's it's a banger. (laughs) Yeah. With that being said, did you want to tell people how they can find you on on, uh, I read comic books? Yeah, you can check out the I Read Comic Books podcast. We drop new episodes every Wednesday. It's me and a group of people talking about all things comic books, um, big two comics, superhero comics, manga, everything in between. Uh, you can also support us at uh, patreon.com slash IRCB podcast, where we have bonus audio, including a movie club show that I host. where We talk about comic book based films. John was a guest on our episode about Dick Tracy. That was very, very mm-hmm. fun. Find that over at patreon.com slash IRCB podcast. It's time to bring back the Dick Tracy series on Irie Comic Books. So we can talk about that. Dick Tracy zooms in special. Yes. Yeah, it's a, Dick Tracy zooms in special, special. <laughs> Insane. If you don't know what we're talking about, just Google Dick Tracy zooms in Turner Classic Movies and yeah. uh, just get get ready for the ride of your life. So <laughs> as far as this show goes, make sure you follow us at B1M1Pod on Instagram and Facebook. Make sure you follow, like, rate, review, and subscribe us on Apple Podcasts and ring the bell and rate us five stars on Spotify so you never miss an episode and it's easier for people to find the show on all platforms where people listen to podcasts. Thanks to Christian Cramo for our theme music. And yeah, thanks to John Wick for just being a stand-up guy. And uh, we'll uh, we'll be back next week to talk about John Wick 3 Parabellum. It's going to be about a seven-hour long podcast because that movie... (laughs) fucking rips it's so good until next time be seeing you